Hello and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. I'm really glad you're listening to our podcast this episode. This is episode seven of the podcast, and today we're talking about the topic of religious trauma. And I have a special guest for the podcast today. This is uh, Emily Stewart is joining us today. How are you, Emily? You know, I am getting through it. Okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what it is that you're getting through um, and and some of the irony, <laughs> I guess, of, <laughs> yes. of the story we're about to unfold for the painful, our listeners. painful irony. Yeah. Sometimes that's the way it is. Yeah. So um, Emma, Emily and I met or sort of met at Wild Goose Festival this past year. Um, mm-hmm. She, she, Emily, you were with a group of friends sitting in front of where um, my group and I were sitting. And so we were kind of interacting throughout the whole festival. And then I think when we all got home, we all did the obligatory you know, add friends on Facebook for everybody that you met at Wild Goose. And and so conversations sort of ensued from that. Um, But the reason that I... That the collection connection started. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so everybody's new favorite band, right? Did you know them before? (laughs) Yeah, I had heard of them before. I had seen a couple of shows with them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was our, our gang. That was sort of our first introduction. And then we were, like, all in from the very beginning. Um, so yes, the, the collection, um, has really had a big influence <laughs> yes. on, on, on a lot of these conversations that we're having. It's really interesting. We could maybe, maybe I'll see if they can allow us to use some of their music as a soundtrack for the podcast. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, this conversation of ours started a while ago. You did some research, um, for your master's degree Yes. on this topic about religious trauma. So let's let's start a little bit with talking about the research, and then um, then what I think will happen is we'll we'll end up going into some conversation about what happened to you personally as a result of this research. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because yeah. that's where things get a little weird and interesting. Um, so self self fulfilling prophecy for sure. Yeah, yeah, really. As, as I was kind of reading through your paper when you sent it to me, and now knowing what the story is that we're going to unpack here, uh, yeah, that self fulfilling prophecy was very much um, kind of at the front of my mind. How mm-hmm. it's always things great when like research performs itself on the researcher. <laughs> yeah. You know? Is there is there like an academic um, term for that? Is that something? I have no idea. I, I'll add it. I'll add it to whatever papers I write. You know. Yeah, yeah. So you did this research about religious trauma. So, what was it first of all that kind of um, prompted you to do that research or inspired you to do that particular research? Yeah. So um, to start, I'm getting my master's in clinical mental health counseling. So to eventually be a therapist. Um, and I have grown up kind of all over the place when it comes to faith traditions. Like my dad grew up Greek Orthodox. My mom grew up Catholic. Um, but we kind of all landed in a laser light show, non-denominational, but really a Southern Baptist right, right. evangelical church kind of thing. Right. And I, at the time did not know like anything was wrong, but I experienced some crazy stuff while I was there. Um, And it wasn't until I was leaving, in process of leaving an abusive relationship, romantic relationship, that I really realized like how much of the trauma that I was, um, that I had gained from that romantic relationship was also weirdly connected to my like spiritual faith-based upbringing right oh wow yeah yeah so I can connect um like how I sort of was um more like predisposed to get into a relationship like that based on how I was conditioned within this kind of Christianity that I grew up in and how my um my abuser was also more predisposed to abuse me based in like the evangelical sort of thing that he grew up in. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that he didn't make choices of his own, which he did, but you know, um, but but there is, there's sort of a, there's sort of an environment 
Yeah, there's in a some of those contexts. Yeah, yeah. Um, from these like foundational beliefs of like patriarchy and all the things that I'm sure we'll go into later. Um, so it was in my own healing that I really I realized one of the main like deep problems with this like toxicity can be brought back to the religious environment that we have, especially in the Bible Belt, especially in evangelical churches um, today. Right, right. Wow, that's really interesting. So, so at first, so so you're taking this your your personal experiences lead you into a topic you know that has some interest uh, for you. Um, so, what was at first were you? really looking at this from more or less a clinical perspective though was that was that sort of at the outset yeah, so i was in a human development and life cycle class um which is just a very standard class that we have to take and we had to do a research pro- project a semester-long research project where we could do literally anything on um any sort of developmental process in the human life cycle So I was very interested in spiritual development and had recently heard of um, James Fowler, James Fowler's work in spiritual development through Sarah Bessie, actually. She talks about it in um, her book, Out of Sorts. So I was already researching that before I started my class. Um, And then I just kind of saw the opportunity, started putting some things together in my mind, and then started researching it, and it, like, backed my research, you know? Yeah. um, it's kind of confirmed my hypothesis as I was researching, um, which was really interesting, I felt. And I feel like there's so much more even than I was able to put into my, I don't know how many, like 16 page paper that I wrote. Like, yeah, there's yeah. So much more information in there too. So it was just a very interesting topic. Um, and of course, like I went to a evangelical conservative Christian university. So I thought that like it would be pertinent research to have for counselors who will most likely have evangelical clients or like post evangelical clients. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't trying to be like divisive or (laughs) trying to hate on anyone, even though the research is very close and personal to me, but yeah. So it's just a, a very interesting sort of falling into this kind of, yeah side of religious abuse and trauma yeah that's um so so there's this sense where the research could be helpful even in that context as even though even though you are in you know a conservative evangelical university surely people who are in um you know the counseling center or whatever they're at the university this would be something that i would assume would come up <laughs> from mm-hmm. students, right? Yeah. I'm sure. So, yeah. In spiritual development, right? Like, if we're going to talk about different models of spiritual development, and this is beyond Christianity, just like spiritual development in general, um, the stages that Fowler talks about are incredibly important for us to be able to have compassion and empathy for someone at any point in their spiritual journey. So, we need to talk about that, but then we also need to talk about how specific institutions can hinder or halt or re-traumatize people that are in like in process of spiritually developing. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I want to talk about um, Fowler's work for a minute here, because as I read your paper, that was one of the things that really struck me as someone who, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the inside. I'm, I'm a United Methodist um, pastor and, you know, so we may not have quite the same, context as the conservative evangelical uh, world that you were in there. That whole notion um, that you presented in your paper on Fowler's research about the stages of faith development, mm-hmm. um, I found that really interesting. Um, so can, can you kind of briefly outline what those stages of development are and, and talk yeah, about that? Yeah, I'm by no means yeah. like a Fowler expert. Um, okay. He wrote most of his research in the late 70s, early 80s for context. But essentially, he, um, he proposed a like sequential and hierarchical sort of understanding of reality and meaning making. So it's kind of a postmodern idea before postmodern was really big, right? Like a construct. Right. <laughs> 
sort of idea that we create our own meaning and we create our own reality based in how we interact with symbols. So he has, um, I believe it's seven different progressive stages of um, faith development. So stage zero is primal faith. So that's when you're a baby, like you don't really have a cognitive understanding of faith. Intuitive projective faith is stage one. Mythic literal is stage two, which is um, like God is a superhero kind of stage. Okay, um, yeah. Then we have synthetic conventional faith, which is stage three, which is um, very typical of pretty much anyone, like it's conventional. So it is most congregations in America fall on stage three. It's kind of um, an adherence to uh, authority and to community and strongly basing your values in what your authority tells you to and holding that like tacitly. Um, and then stage four is individuative reflective faith, which is questioning everything. That's angstly questioning everything. Right, yeah. Um, stage five is conjunctive faith, which is an understanding that um, even though you had to tear apart everything in stage four and you don't need to, rebuild it in the same way um it is it's has value to have it built right yeah yeah that that echoes a lot of um what richard Rohr talks yes. about um especially in his latest book the universal christ yes that you know that we go through these stages and and sometimes we do get to this point where where we want to ditch what we've come from <laughs> because we we're kind of ashamed of that or we feel mm -hmm. like we've outgrown it when instead we should be um, understanding it for what it was, valuing it as part of our evolution yes. and, and then integrating it into what we're growing into. Right. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. So it's very integrative stage. Um, and then stage six, the final stage is universalizing faith. Um, which it very simply is that every faith system has value and can seek the divine in some way. And it's very interesting because Fowler did not find very many people who would fit into universalizing faith besides, I think it was um, uh, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, and then like the person of Jesus. The oh, wow. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so even our buddy Richard Rohr hasn't quite arrived yet. <laughs> no, I can't um, pick Fowler's brain because he's dead. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that he would categorize Richard Rohr as universalizing. Wow. Um, there, there's like very, very strict like adherences to be universalizing. Yeah. Great ideal, but not a lot of people get there when not right. a lot of people even leave stage three, right? Yeah. But something important to remember with Fowler is that it's not applied to a specific faith. So it can be, it can be anything that you would consider faith or meaning making, right? So it can be like Christianity or Islam or Mormonism or literally anything. Um, yeah. Or atheism for that matter. Or atheism. Right? So, yeah. It can be any sort of way that you make meaning in the world. Um, and then two, the stages don't have a moral functioning. So it's like not better to be stage six than it is to be stage one. It's just a progression. Gotcha. Right. That's so interesting. So in your paper, you, you sort of um, make the point that, that most of what we would call the American evangelical church, which it, even that is a pretty broad Yes, so broad. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard to nail down exactly what we mean. Because by even it's more of a movement than it is like a group of people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because certainly even within like even within my denomination, the United Methodists, there are evangelical groups within that, evangelical movements within that. There are evangelical Catholics, you know. Yep. Yeah, I, I think and probably unfairly, we do tend to lump like a lot of the the Baptist and pseudo Baptist and Pentecostal um, charismatic sorts of movements all into that. But the, even that's probably painting with too broad of a stroke. Oh, know? definitely. I, it is, it is so easy to look at a whole church and say, Oh, you're all this, or you're all that when it's made up of individual people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But you do have this theory though, that, that, again, speaking very broadly, very generally, yes. um, that, that, that 
evangelical expression or whatever of church tends to get stuck at stage three, right? Yes. Um, and so why do you think that is? Why, why does it matter? Yeah. So this is just a theory. It's not based in any sort of census work that I've done. Right. Um, and it's mostly based in observation of my own experience. And then also of like several of my close friends experiences and also what I've read kind of like just research experience kind of thing. Right. But, right. So the, um, the evangelical sort of movement embodies, and I don't, I'm not an expert in the history of the evangelical movement either. So correct me if I'm wrong. You probably know a lot more than I do. I will um, see. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, generally evangelicals tend to believe in a certain like set of foundational beliefs. Um, and that can be applied in different denominations, uh, which I believe are along the lines of like, a personal, like a very personal relationship with Jesus and a personal responsibility um, to evangelize or share faith with unbelievers, salvation only by grace. So the rejection of salvation by works, um, very Protestant in that aspect. Right, right. The literal existence of Satan and the literal existence of hell going along with that. Um, eternal damnation for all unbelievers, no matter what. Um, which really applies to the responsibility to share your faith, right? And then the Bible's complete accuracy and errancy and authority as the sole capital W word of God. Right, right. Yeah, I'd say you pretty well nailed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it was sort of grown as it grew, it grew out of this um, liberal progressive movement in the early 1900s. Um, in like a rejection of yeah. social justice movement, right? Towards like Christians need to be more socially justice minded. And the conservatives were like, no, <laughs> they don't. So they sort of created conservative evangelicals and then dropped the conservative part of it and applied it right. as to many different churches. Also do with yeah. the, the moral majority also has to do with it, you know, lots of different things. Right. Yeah. Early on, um, I did when I was in seminary, I did a lot of my research on um, postmodernism. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it kind of dovetails really nicely with, with what we're talking about here. But yeah, a lot of that um, kind of fundamentalist evangelical movement, yeah. you know, that kind of hatched late 19th, early 20th century, um, definitely a response to, um, to the liberation theology movement mm -hmm. that was happening, you know, mostly Jesuits and Franciscans leading um, new communities in um, Central and South America. Um, not exclusively that, but that was a big kind of um, cauldron <clears throat> for that movement to begin. So it was a rejection of that movement, but then it was also kind of a rejection, I think, of um, scientific modernism in general. Um, this notion, it started as a movement um, against the scientific movement that said, you know, everything can be empirically proven right all reality all truth yeah. um and, and interestingly enough that that religious movement against that ended up taking on all of the qualities of scientific yes. modernism and so yeah. that's where we get you know that's where we get apologetics and all of that kind of work that we have to now use the tools of the very movement we're fighting against yes right so yes. yeah interesting stuff yes but i think that um so the way that Fowler talks about stage three, um, the synthetic conventional stage, is that the way that we interact with symbols is based almost entirely by how our authority hands it to us. Um, so that's a very important part of stage three, and also something that I see so often in the American evangelical church, where there is a, um, a huge amount of pressure or uh, reliance on the authority figures, whether that be a pastor or a priest or even just the capital W word of God being the Bible, um, mm -hmm. where there is this ultimate authority where we gain all of our relativistic truth, um, 
our entire reality is based in this authority figure um, with quotes figure, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And then it's also incredibly, stage three is also incredibly community-based. So this idea that if you are without community or you're outside of community's bounds, then you don't have an identity and you don't have a purpose. And I see this very often in churches that claim to be evangelical as like, you need to be involved in this much of church and do this much of this. And um, if and you give are, this much of your money and yes, yes. <laughs> and if you are intending to go against your small group or like dissent in this way or whatever, then you are disciplined by being pulled even closer to the fold or being cast out, right? Yeah, that that's an interesting notion too. That that just because when you talk about discipline, what what I immediately think of is control mechanisms, right? Yes. And 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 power dynamics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are at work like, there. I want to be uh, clear up front, which I'm sure that you know, knowing me a little <laughs> bit, that I'm not trying to be divisive in talking about the American evangelical church in this way, churches can be abusive in different ways, right? Like one right, church right. that identifies as evangelical can be abusive or one small group within that church can be abusive. Um, but I think that it is unique to the American evangelical church that they have created sort of a, like a structure that perpetuates abuse, but that's a different conversation. But anyways, um, stage three, uh, and it's just how, how individuals interact with symbols that make it very um, conventional and synthetic. For example, um, if an individual says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, that is taking it into um, this like very formal and, but at the same time, personal understanding of the symbols that you have. So you're holding them really tightly, but also right. not like fully giving like a critical analysis of them because it's so close to you, which is great. Like that's a strength of the stage three, I would say, is that you hold your values so close to your chest. Yeah, but it, it, do, it does make sense. And it also kind of speaks to maybe, and maybe, um, maybe kind of the next question is you know, sort of, you know, why, why is it that that folks seem to kind of get stuck there? Yeah, and it sounds like there's so much of your identity is tied yes. up. With yeah, that. it's so comfortable because your identity is told to you. Yes. You don't have to create your identity for yourself, which is in a, a deeply, deeply uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. Um, to lose everything that was told about you. Um, if you think of like a collection song um i think it's you have to crucify all these truths with all the lies right right yeah That's part of it um is having to sort through everything so it's so comfortable to stay in this space where you're comforted by your community you're told by authority um what to do and how to act and behave and to love people or not love people you're told what is good and what's not good and you can just hold these things and you don't have to think about them. And that's a fine place to be if you're into that. <laughs> I, think, I think that that is an okay way to live, right? Like it makes me kind of sad, but like ignorance is truly bliss, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, and, and just to clarify, like ignorance is not a term of derision. No. It just simply means that you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, you don't know. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That is a completely okay place to be, right? Yeah. Um, so if if that if that stage three is, is such a comfortable area, what might prompt someone to move beyond that? Why would you ever want to move beyond that? Oh right? yeah, yeah. So it was really interesting in Fowler's <laughs> research in how you move beyond it. It's usually by a tragedy in your life or some sort of traumatic event that causes you to question the state of everything. So stage four is all about questions, right? It's all about figuring out your identity. You lose a lot of the value 
of um, your community and your authority figures. Sometimes you have two authority figures that you really like, but they contradict each other. Or like, I remember the first time that I learned that there were contradictions in the Bible. And I was just like, my mind was blown, you know? Yeah. Like, you start questioning everything that was presented to you. Um, or it's like when you grow up and learn that your parents were doing their best, but they also like screwed up, you know? Um, right, yeah. Where you start questioning them as people, as like people that are separate from yourself. So, so yeah, so you're, you're almost confronted with competing realities. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and you, you have to and make you, sense of it in some yeah. way. Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, um, that's kind of where this notion of deconstruction starts, yeah. which is a topic we talk about a lot on this podcast and on my blog, um, because I think I'm still 10 years into my deconstruction now. <laughs> um, but it, there is like that when you begin to question the worldview that has been handed to you or you've inherited or, you know, however you come about it, um, that in itself is a bit of a traumatic experience on some level. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it is, it's like how when you have a traumatic event happen to you, it is the reaction by others that you get to the event that happened to you that traumatizes you more. So like if, for example, um, if a woman is raped and then she is victim shamed afterwards, she's going to have more of a trauma response Yeah. to the rape in the first place. Um, so in the same way, when you have a tragedy happen to you that breaks down your faith and then you are having like other people come in in the natural progression of stage three to stage four and being like, are you sure? Like this deconstruction thing, is this really okay? Then you're going to all like continue. What kind of hippy dippy stuff is this? Yeah. yeah you're going to continue to have this like traumatic response to it. Um, but it was very interesting. Also, this is kind of a side note, but this research made me dislike the word deconstruction. Oh, really? Because, yeah. Because it, Deconstruction almost has a, like, a stigmatized notion of you are breaking down, like, everything. Whereas Fowler's understanding of spiritual progression is a building up. Does that make sense? So yeah, like, it does. Yeah. And it, and it kind of speaks to, um, you know, going back again to some of the work I did in, in postmodern philosophy, like, this tendency towards deconstruction for its own sake, mm-hmm. right? Just mm-hmm. to tear institutions apart just for the sake of doing it because they don't make sense to you anymore. If there's no reconstruction on the other side of that, then basically you're just plunging into nihilism. Yeah. Which is what we're trying to avoid here. Exactly. Um, yeah. Accidental. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, a little nihilism is fine, but <laughs> yeah, just like a, just a salt tag. <laughs> yeah. There's a great line in um, The Big Lebowski. Are you familiar with that movie? Yeah. Where, where the dude gets introduced to this guy as a nihilist. He goes, a nihilist? That must be exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be, right? It would be. Yeah. And it's some of my friends who have gone through the deepest amount of deconstruction that's possible, right? And ended up, I, I don't think there are ever any like true nihilists in the world, but ended up basically nihilist. Um, they're like so tired all of the time yeah yeah it really is it's like go like look at a flower or something <laughs> take some hope somewhere yeah. yeah yeah hope is the currency that we have the only currency that we have left in this world so we gotta we gotta stand <laughs> forward you know at accidental tomatoes we're building a community of people looking for ways to find faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the traditional church While our blog and our podcast are always absolutely free, if you'd like to go deeper with more resources and conversations, we invite you to support us through the Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can receive bonus content, including a monthly newsletter, patrons-only commentary, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. So in your research, 
then your your um, thesis is basically that 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 religious trauma syndrome mm-hmm. tends to be triggered somewhere in that transition between phase can. three and phase four, right? Is that it right? Or? That is a that is definitely a place that it can happen. Okay. Yes, um, because, and I have to attribute basically all of my research on religious trauma to Marlene Winnell, um, who is a counselor out of, based out of California. Um, she has done almost all of this research on religious trauma syndrome. There are a couple of other big ones, you know. Um, Connie Baker also does a ton of research on religious trauma. And there are, you know, the big names like Nadia Bowles-Weber and Rachel Held Evans touched on it a little bit and Linda K. Klein. But anyways, I just want to give all these women applause for all the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Religious trauma syndrome, but mostly Dr. Marlene Winnell. Um, and religious trauma syndrome, it kind of has like two base points, right? The first one is you are introduced to these foundational beliefs that are very psychologically harmful um, in the first place. So I am not going to comment on the morality of these beliefs or like the of like evaluate these beliefs, but within American evangelical Christianity, um, these can kind of fall under um, like eternal damnation, like this idea that you will be punished for something as simple as lying. Um, And it can be for all unbelievers, anyone who doesn't physically, verbally name Jesus, right? Right, right. Like that idea in and of itself can be um, foundationally harmful. And then a negative view of self. So I see in... American evangelical Christianity, a lot of like, um, total depravity. Like I was involved in some reformed circles for a while and this was pretty big. Um, but this idea of total depravity of like in and of ourselves, we are undeserving. Um, and we are never enough. We never measure up. And the only thing that makes us measure up is Jesus, which is like a beautiful idea in and of itself. But when you really think about it and how it affects your person, if you're going to negatively think about yourself all of the time, then you're yeah. going to be psychologically harmed, right? Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of different like foundational beliefs that Marlene Winnell talks about um, that can cause this like predisposition towards traumatization. Not necessarily that if you had these beliefs growing up or in your developmental years spiritual developmental years, you will be traumatized. That's not necessarily what it is, but like you are more predisposed, you are less resilient if you have these in your home. And they can be pretty like one for one applied in the American evangelical church. Another example would be like an environment that systemically breeds abuse of women and children. Um, Again, not gonna be divisive. This is very controversial. Try not to right, be right. <laughs> but like the patriarchal structures that value men remaining in power over listening to women and children and giving equality to women and children can predispose women and children to being abused. And I think yeah. that obviously if you like look into the news, that is what to be seen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there so there's one that sort of base of foundational beliefs. But then two, there's this idea that leaving your religion can re-traumatize you and can perpetuate the trauma that you already had. So Marlene Winnell talks about like how in leaving the trauma, the ideas of, um, or leaving the religion that you grew up with, the ideas now apply to you. So the eternal damnation of all unbelievers now applies to you. So even if you're trying to cognitively shed that belief, you're still going to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Like it, it takes a while to break those, um, those thought patterns and those yeah. thought habits. Yeah. And it's more than just a cognitive belief. It is a part of your identity. Yeah. And your identity is shaped by God, like the creator of the universe, um, the reality maker 
So of course, like anything that you think that goes against what you attribute to be like the thoughts of God or the understanding of God, then you're without hope. Yeah. And that, you know, that explains so much of why there's so much backlash um, toward, you know, more the the progressive Christian community, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of like um, uproar between stages zero and one or one to two and two to three. And there's not a lot of uproar between stages four and five and five and six. Right, right. But there is so much contention between stages three and stages four because both of them are like pointing fingers at each other and saying, you're wrong and you're hurting people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it creates this this friction because mm-hmm. our default our default setting is if I believe that I'm right, that means by definition, you're wrong. Exactly. And it, and it, you know, again, kind of coming back to some of Richard Rohr's thinking, it's that dualism um, that our ego falls into Mm -hmm. that it has to be either this or this. And we're unwilling to see that. That's one of the things I really like about what you say in your research, talking about this progression, right. That, that is not based on morality. It just is. And, and not everybody's going to get, to the same stages at the same time. And I suspect it's probably less linear than it is more of a, oh. a spiral dynamic kind of. Yeah, if you yeah. To... I was um, thinking about including spiral dynamics in this <laughs> did not have time. Uh, That's Fowler, a lot. <laughs> Fowler proposes strictly a hierarchical sort of thing, but a lot of the people that were under him were like, what about people who regress? <laughs> like, what about <laughs> this and that? And he didn't really address these Yeah. Things. So there's yeah. definitely he's not like by all means like the like end all to spiritual development and understanding that um but i think that is definitely not necessarily a linear path but usually if you go to stage four you're not going back yeah yeah that's very true and, and of I, I can't think of anyone that i know that would identify as a progressive christian that could even imagine going back. Yeah. Um, and I it, it, that, yeah. I think that um, if you do go back, back, it is a part of like the re-traumatization of trying to make right out of what happened. Like for, for me, for example, like I, <laughs> in like the first year of me choosing to go to this conservative Christian evangelical university, I was like, why wait, (laughs) why did I choose this? Like, why did I, out of all of the universities that I could go to, why did I choose this? But I really think it's because we're always trying to work out our own trauma. Like we are all going to the places that feel comfortable, even if they're toxic places, to work out our trauma. Um, So I, I like can comfortably say now that I am not in that <laughs> university anymore, um, that I picked it because I, in my, like, in what Marlene Winnell calls, like, the foundational beliefs that cause trauma, I didn't trust myself. Like, I believed that my identity, myself, my being was not my own. Um, so, and I had such a negative view of my thoughts and feelings that I wanted a God figure, a God character to make the choice for me. And that choice of course is going to lead me to an environment that is comfortable for like that view of God, you know? Yeah. Um, where God makes choices for us is going to like lead us to institutions that perpetuate and promote God making choices for us. So we're talking about this research you did and and the the phases uh, or stages of of spiritual formation, but this research and, and you've touched on it a little bit already, but you, you got you in a little trouble, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't, um, I can't say that this is the straw that broke the camel's back, but I can suspect. Um, so I presented this research at the end of last semester, so in December, um, and I made every 
notion that I could to say, I'm not trying to be divisive. I'm not trying to um, hurt anyone's feelings or go above anyone's like authority or like say that I'm a prophet or literally anything like that. You know, I was like, I don't even agree with everything that Marlene Wendell is talking about. Just going to put that out there beforehand. But um, so in addition to getting my master's at this university, I was also working in student services and my position finally after like nine months of fighting for it became full-time in December around the same time that I presented this research and when I came back from Christmas break I was pulled into HR and told that um, I do not meet the standards to be a Christian representative of the university Oh no. Yeah. So I asked multiple times, like, why? <laughs> like, what, what standards did I break? What policy did I break? Um, who said this? Like, is this gossip? Is this perception? What is this? And they wouldn't tell me anything. Um, so as quick as I got my full-time job, I lost it. Um, wow. And it was also something that would provide me tuition remission and benefits, and I'm 26, so benefits are highly needed over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were just like, nope, bye, and would not tell me why. They had gone above my boss. Um, they had informed him, not consulted him. They hadn't talked to anyone who could vouch for my character, and all that they really left me with was there is a perception that I'm not a good Christian representative of the university and i was like okay well cool guys uh wow. this is the least um and i use these words really lightly because they've been used against me so many times but this is like the least christ-like thing i've ever experienced in my life yeah <laughs> this is horrible wow. is um and i was talking to my priest because i um i attended like an anglican uh episcopalian church about it and he was like yeah that's um that's what we call uh, spiritual abuse. <laughs> wow, yeah. Evil. It is evil. So, yeah, so my research kind of performed itself on me, where I became a stage four, even though I would think that I lie somewhere between stage four and stage five on Fowler's research, but I became a, sta a stage four dissenting, questioning voice. Right. And the stage three institution itself, whether it be like a student that reported me or the professor or anything. Um, and there are other things that could have also gotten me reported, you know, but by being a dissenting voice, um, I pushed them out of their comfort zone. And they thought that it would be easier and better to boot me by addressing and um, accusing my character. You know? Wow. Wow. I, I can't escape the irony that, that you and I are oh, recording yeah. this on Martin Luther King Day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, one of my favorite books is inspired by Rachel Held Evans and how she talks about prophets being everyday people who um, go against what religion is saying. Just mm, really. Yeah. Yeah. All of the time. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Yep, this is what's happening, and I guess it really sucks. <laughs> so how how bizarre is it <laughs> to live in the midst of that irony? Um, like <laughs> very bizarre. It's very sad, and yeah, yeah. It it makes me angry because I and just so sad because I I know myself and I know my identity and I've done a lot of work in that, but I know that there are people who if we want to use Fowler's terms, are just entering stage three or stage four, I mean, the individuative reflective stage, just starting to question, just starting to develop their own identity. Um, who would take that and then turn it to be like, this is God, right? And like regress yeah. in that way of like, okay, since authority is telling me this, then it must be God telling me this. And therefore, like God is telling me that I am a bad person and that I did something wrong and I deserve to be punished. And it's just very, it's very sad because I know, I know that there are people that that has happened to, um, even at the university that I was going to, and I know that there will be more, right? Yeah. Which is what hell on earth is, is like 
it's this creation of a place that separates people from God by shame and fear. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm mostly sad um, for like the amount of people that this has already been done to and that it will be done to in the future. Um, and I <laughs> am equally frustrated for myself and yeah, the, to the point where I, they barred me from continuing my, um, my degree at the university, not in like a, an official expelling kind of way, because I don't think that they would have grounds to do so, even though they probably wanted to. <laughs> um, but in a way that I couldn't continue doing my practical hours um, in the office that I worked in. Oh, yeah. So they barred me from continuing that, even though I already started on my practical hours. Um, so I withdrew from the university and I now am in process of transferring, but not all of my credits transfer. So I'm basically at a loss of about a year of graduate school and like $20,000. Wow. So, yeah, you, and I mean, it will work itself out. It will be okay. Um, but it's just like, oh, yep, this happened. Yep. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense that I put myself in, not not to shame myself or um, take full responsibility, but I did, like, in trying to uh, work out my own trauma, put myself into a position where I could be further traumatized and re-traumatized. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things this points out to me is that that when we talk about trauma and especially religious trauma or spiritual trauma, this is not just an emotional response. It has practical oh, yeah. implications in the real world, right? Um, yeah. So it's not just that it, it sends, it might send somebody into, you know, a period of depression, anxiety, those kinds of things, but also then has this domino effect on things like, you know, employment and even, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even go as far as things like housing and feeding and, um, yeah, I'm so glad that I wasn't living on campus because I would have lost my housing. Right. Yeah. Um, I know clearly you're not crazy about the word deconstruction. I'm, I'm open to other terms here, but, but what I I'm wondering if, if it's even possible to progress along, um, this, these phases of spiritual development without at some point, especially it seems like between phases three and four stages, three and four, without some kind of deconstructive process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that I, is, I get that the is hope that there's reconstruction on the other side, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And that's a part of it. Um, I think that the deconstruction or finding your own identity, um, is a part of the process. However, what I found in my research and also my own experience, I suppose, is that um, the transition from stage three to stage four is already kind of like traumatic. It's already a reorientation of self. Yeah, so it's yeah. already causing like some distress. And some distress in your life is not a bad thing. Like it's not like the end all be all. Everyone's going to have some distress, right? It's a part of coming into your own but that distress is exasperated to the point of trauma when there's this introduction of foundational beliefs and also a strict, strict adherence to authority and community in the way that the American Evangelical Church has. So you can have a smooth transition from three to four, but I really think that, at least in my experience, the American Evangelical Church does not help the process along. And, and to be fair, I, you know, I, that's not to say that they do that out of malice. They truly no. think they're doing what's best. Yes, yeah, for sure. Like you can look at it, I think of, I think of Nicodemus actually as a good example of someone who is within stage three under authority within community and then creates an identity for themselves because there's a lot of loss in identity right yeah 
Um, and we don't know like Nicodemus's full story, but we do know that he helped bury Jesus, right? So that is completely against everything that he was raised to do and be. Yeah. Um, so there is this idea of to move into stage four, you have to lose so much. It's almost as if someone might have said, you have to lose your life in order to find it. I feel oh, like I've heard that somewhere. I feel like I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's so funny in all of this, in all of everything that has happened in this past week um, to me, uh, I can literally only think of Bible verses, which is very uncharacteristic of me um, in my stage four rage, rage against the machine kind of thing. Um, I can That's only fantastic. Bible verses to explain the situation and to like move forward out of it. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. I, I had sort of a similar experience when I first started reading Brian McLaren's work about maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and my, my change wasn't nearly, it wasn't traumatic like that in any way. Um, not to the extent that your experience was um, by any stretch of the imagination, but there was sort of that, like, I have to grab a hold of something, you know, <laughs> there's, mm-hmm there's something new presented to me that makes more sense than what I was living under before, but I still have to be able to grab hold of something real, you know, to pull me through that. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I would say it's almost moving into the stage five of conjunctive faith where it is grabbing onto things and symbols and values that you once held near and didn't question, but in a way that I've already questioned this and I am, I think record, maybe talked about second naivety of like, I am willing to accept this as it is, even yeah. though I've pulled it apart no matter what. So that's how I'm feeling right now is like the second naivety of like, you know, maybe even though I have a hard time believing in this, this, and this, like I know in a very strange way, like what is real? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I can hold on to that, even though I have examined the, like the shit out of it over the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can still hold on to it. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of our, uh, of our time here. Um, I, I just kind of want to, to sort of wrap things up, you know, the, the mission, I guess, for lack of a better term of, uh, of what we're trying to do with accidental tomatoes is to help people find ways to, um, to express and live out their faith you know, what I, the, the word I use is beyond the walls or beyond the fences of the institutional church. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you think your, um, your research, number one, and then also your story um, can help people in that process of living out faith outside of the confines, I guess, of the institution? Yeah, I think one of the things that was so incredibly hopeful for me when I first started reading about Fowler is that there's so there's two more stages beyond like questioning right like it doesn't right. all end um and you have so much more of a choice in that than you think when you first start questioning everything and recreating your identity um so that was really encouraging to me and then I there's always, there's always more to like press on into as, as much as that sounds cliche. Like there is always more to think about and discover and to also rest in. Yeah. And like maybe, okay with. Yeah. Maybe that's why so many people do tend to get stuck at phase or stage three is because we want to feel like we've arrived and we can just stop <laughs> and rest, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and yeah. not keep pressing in and not keep learning. And I always go back to the story of whether, whether you take it literally or figuratively of the Israelites in the desert, um, you know, and they finally get to the promised land and they think, oh, you know, this is it. We've arrived. And then it starts all over, right? They're, they're in the war again, perpetually. And, and so you never arrive. I, and I think that's part of that story is we're all, we're all just on this journey. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're all just like, in the end, it is so much less about the journey, but all, but more about being. Yeah. Right? Like, and that sounds so hippy dippy, and <laughs> I'm not even sorry about that. But it no, is heck no. more about just 
feeling your own expression of self. And that is like kind of what divinity is to me is like feeling the expression of everything. Yeah. Um, and I, it is so interesting in the way that like my deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever, moving forward, um, progressing has led me to the um, Episcopalian church. <laughs> so I went from like the cool hip Southern Baptist kind of non-denominational laser light show churches to a very historical, liturgical, um, traditional church. Yeah. Um, where that feels more like home and real and solid than any of sort of like the evangelical things that I've been a part of. Um, so it's, it's just this like, this interesting thing of like coming home to yourself. And that is like the greatest part of the journey, but also not a journey at all. And I think that's like, that's what Jesus helps us do and has given us the way to do is to come home to ourselves. So I intend to take my research and also this story and to hopefully whenever I do become a therapist <laughs> yeah, to um, be able to be with people who have gone through similar things. Cause I know there will be more and to encourage and to build up, to edify those who have experienced similar things, you know? And I, I really just in the advocacy part of um, counseling, because that is a big part, social, social justice is a big part of counseling. I uh, hope to address these issues in ways that I can to be honest and kind and truthful in myself in the way that I, you know, address the patriarchy, bring it down. Yeah. Well, that's terrific, man. I, I, I really appreciate you um, being on the podcast today and, and being vulnerable enough to tell your story. I, I know there's a lot of pain um, that still goes with that, but I, I really do think that it's going to be really helpful for a lot of folks um, who are going through similar kinds of trauma to know, for one thing, that they're not alone and to know that there's still kind of hope on the other side. Of yeah, it, so. I think storytelling is healing. Um, oh, yeah. both for the storyteller and also for the listeners because we we finally get this sense of like connection and that we aren't alone that there is wilderness but in the wilderness we're not alone yeah well that this is such good stuff Emily I could spend hours um, mm -hmm. digging deeper into this conversation maybe we'll get a chance at the goose this summer to um to sit at the beer garden and, and go a little deeper into all of that. But, um, <laughs> well, um, that's going to be it for today's podcast. Thanks again, everyone for listening to this episode. Uh, you can find accidental tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com and across the social media world. We are at accidental tomatoes. So be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages for up-to-the-minute updates of all of the things that we're up to in this community. Um, you can find me, Joe Webb, on my website, joewebwrites.com, and on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at joewebwrites. Emily, is, do you have anything going on in the, in the world of the interwebs that uh, what you're working not on? Or? that I am trying to cultivate currently. I'm just trying to like regroup and pick up the pieces of yeah. my so we're going to do that. I'll update y'all later. Well, you know, being on the Accidental Tomatoes podcast is going to launch you in fame <laughs> and, and notoriety beyond your wildest dreams. Someone will so. pay for all of my student loans. Yeah. Just, someone out there wants to steward their money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that person is just, God is putting it on their heart to do mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have ideas uh, as listeners for future podcast topics, any suggestions, I would love to hear from you. You can contact us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to your podcast. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in this ongoing conversation. So thanks again to Emily Stewart for being our guest on this episode and keep on growing outside the fences.
and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.